Today on The Burning Archive, I ask, what are the origin stories, the origin history stories of the Russian world, of Russian history? In my series on the black legend of Russian history, I look at the early years of the Russian world, from about 800 to 1200 AD, that is sometimes referred to as the era of Kievan Rus. Three countries at least lay claim to the heritage of these times, three countries today. It was the time of the beginnings of a Russian state, a Belarusian state, and a Ukrainian state. For hundreds of years, the history of this time has been debated and coloured by various nationalist or or sentiments, various national sentiments of many countries, uh, not only Russia, Ukraine and Belarus, but Germany and uh, uh, others. And not surprisingly, that controversy has heated up in 2022 in the midst of the Russia-NATO-Ukraine war in Ukraine. How does the black legend of Russian history play out in debates about what happened between, in the area between Novgorod and Kiev from 800 to 1200? That is the question on today's Burning Archive. Uh, I am Jeff Rich. I am a podcaster, an independent author and historian. And this is the Burning Archive podcast, where I explore how the past makes itself felt in our lives today and how we can live better with the past in the present, not just rage against it. And uh, I will have more info on my uh, content and how you can support me later in the show. But this is the 11th episode in a series I've been doing on uh, the the black legend, on, on Russian history, uh, framed by an episode called The Black Legend of Russian History, which talked about, I guess, the negative images, negative stereotypes uh, of Russian history, even presented in some, particularly in Anglo-American historiography, but even in, in scholarly accounts. And it's a version of Russian history that, I guess, uh, encourages people to see Russia as a uniquely benighted place destined to despotism, cruelty and suffering. But uh, Mark B. Smith's wonderful book, The Russia Anxiety, encourages people to think beyond that. And I've been going through uh, a series of uh, discussions going through history backwards, beginning with uh, Mikhail Gorbachev and the collapse of the Soviet Union, and uh, then now reaching the centuries between 800 and 1200, when the first distinct form of a Russian state, a Russian culture, a Russian civilization, or if you prefer, a Ukrainian state or a Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian civilization, started to take form. Uh, if you like, not so terribly different from, the, I guess, the early era of late medieval Britain, really. 
Alfred the Great, 1066 and all that, and the early years of the sort of Plantagenet kings of England. For those of us who are more grounded in, uh, I guess, Anglo-American history. So, but this is a very crucial period and um, uh, quite an intriguing period in Russian history. So, and it is one which has, has I guess, um, you know, has limited real historical evidence remaining, but around which there is and has always been significant controversy, especially amongst historians who wish to present uh, a nationalist account, whether that nationalist account is Russian, Ukrainian, Belarusian, German, Swedish even, um, uh, because some people say Russia was founded by the Vikings. So uh, I'm going to sort of set the scene and give a sense of the context of this episode and of this period and then give a bit of a narrative account of things and then really just talk about some of its key thematic significance to how we understand uh, our understanding of the Russian and Ukrainian and Belarusian past and perhaps even some other cultures uh, as we'll discover in the present today. So, first of all, let's just talk about this period. So, this period is roughly about 800 to 1200. Uh, I guess you could say it formally comes to an end in 1240, uh, when, as we discussed in the previous episode on uh, the Fort Horde, about the Mongol yoke or the Mongol exchange, uh, the Mongol Empire came and sacked and completely destroyed Kiev, effectively destroying this state that has come later bit to be known as Kievan Rus. And uh, but things were <laughs> pretty pretty crappy before then because there had been decades and decades of civil war, but we will get to that later on. And its beginning is a little bit uncertain, but there's certainly the very first sort of archaeological evidence seems to suggest uh, settlements of people in places like Staraya Lagoda, up uh, in the north near Novgorod or near St. Petersburg, if you like, and and in Kiev from about the 8th century. Uh, so, uh, and it's a very complicated story because there's no real... Uh, the, in the previous episode, I talked about the fragmented statelets that existed uh, that were um, uh, subordinated to the um, Mongol Empire and that Muscovy gradually acquired dominance over Novgorod, Tver, Gryazin, etc. And things were even more complicated here. We have um, multiple sort of tribal groups, almost uh, very small groups of people with multiple ethnicities, Finns, Slavs, Khazars, others, 
who um, various sort of uh, Kumans, Pechenegs, various names that no one has ever heard of now or has really, really rings up anymore that are moving around and occupying different territory in this period. So it's quite a hard uh, time to sort of construct a coherent story around and there is nothing like a Ukraine or a Russia uh, in existence. There are these small principalities, these uh, dynastic warlords, if you like, who are uh, asserting some level of control over groups of people and interacting with more significant states around them, most notably the Byzantine Empire down in Constantinople but also with various sort of nomadic uh, peoples from the steppe. And a lot of the evidence from which, uh, on which uh, this period is drawn comes from uh, various chronicles that were written in like uh, the uh, 11th, 12th, 13th centuries, a, a one known as the Primary Chronicle, which was written uh, by monks in Kiev, another one known as the Novgorod Chronicle, which was about Novgorod, and another one known as the, I think it's the Volinia Galichny Chronicle, which is also uh, sort of more about, I guess, in written around the peoples in what we would now think of as Western Ukraine. And there's also significant archaeological evidence. So, for example, there's been lots of uh, digs into various uh, sites up in northern Russia. Staraya Lagoda is perhaps the most famous of those. Uh, that shows the sort of early periods of settlement um, and the interaction between Vikings who are coming in from the north and then going down the rivers and the other other ethnic groups in this area, Slavs, Finns, others as well. Uh, and there's also uh, some use of linguistic evidence as well. So it's all pieced together from uh, significant things. And those chronicles are describing events, uh, many of which are retailed famously. Um, but they're often describing events that are happening two, three, four hundred years uh, after the fact. And for which there's no real corroborating evidence and in which there's also some level of inconsistency in the story. So you have to take a lot of this with a fair grain of salt. And we will meet some characters, many of which we can only know fairly fragmentary, but about which uh, there is still some uh, presence, I guess, today. Perhaps uh, uh, so they include people like Olga, who died roughly 969 AD, and she was the mother of a later prince, a fairly combative prince of Kiev, Sviatoslav. And, but Olga actually was the regent of Kiev when her son was very young, so she was the actual de facto ruler of uh, Kiev for nearly 20 years. 
subsequently made a saint. Um, and uh, the story is told of her, for example, that a rival group to the Rus, the Derevlians, killed her husband, Igor. And then they had the, their leader, Mal, Mal, the leader of the their revelians uh, offered to marry Olga in return, but Olga plotted her revenge. So she um, received some uh, ambassadors or envoys of the Derevlians in a boat and then buried them alive. And then she had another embassy killed when they were in a bathhouse. And then lastly, she went to the lands of the, the Revelians and requested a funeral feast in honour of her dead husband, whereupon she had her troops kill some 5,000 Revelians who had drunk themselves into a stupor. And I guess some sign of the significance of this small statelet of Kiev is also shown by the fact that Olga travelled to Constantinople and the emperor, the emperor Constantine VII, was so taken by her beauty that he proposed marriage, but she refused. However, Olga is particularly significant because she was the first of the Rus who converted to Christianity. Um, she wasn't able to persuade her son Sviatoslav, who remained a pagan, but it's really from Olga that the connection between Russian culture and Orthodox Christianity begins. Uh, Sviatoslav was known as something of a warrior, and uh, I think I think uh, in a recent speech by Vladimir Putin, his name crops up, and he was quite an aggressive warrior, fighting uh, to expand the territories of Kiev, both around that. Coming because Kiev is not the same as Ukraine at this point. This is, it's like, I don't know, maybe it will be what Ukraine will end up with at the end of this war, but um, it's quite a small territory and he's fighting people down in the Crimea and southern, southern Ukraine, southern Russia, all around him. And there is also uh, Vladimir. Vladimir I, who is probably the most, one of the more effective rulers of this small uh, principality, this state, as well as Yaroslav the Wise. I think there's large statues of, of Vladimir, or in Ukrainian, Volodymyr, although, as I understand the original ancient Rus language, it's closer to Vladimir, but there, there are. Uh, as you can imagine, intense nationalist debates about that. There's statues of uh, Vladimir in both Moscow and in Russia. And there's also a chap known as Yaroslav the Wise, who establishes some sort of level of rule and law and order. I guess one of the other orienting things is to think about the size of these cities and these states at this period of time. And again, population estimates uh, vary widely. Um, so they've, I've seen figures for Kiev in this time, uh, anywhere between ten and 100,000 
people, but it's still a relatively, I mean, it's large relative to other settlements in this territory at this time, but it's still a relatively small place. Uh, Constantinople, I think, is estimated to have had like half a million to a million people in this period of time. And Novgorod is around uh, 35,000 people or maybe a bit smaller. Again, estimates vary. And Kievan Rus itself is really describing a, I guess a, you could almost imagine like a rectangular sort of um, uh, space stretching down from the area near St. Petersburg today down to the area a bit south of Kiev today. And that is the area that is um, Kievan Rus. So it stretches through Russia, what what is nowadays Russia, Belarus, and parts of Ukraine. So it is not a precursor of Ukraine. It's not a precursor of Russia. It's not a precursor of Belarus. And yet it is also a partial beginning of all those places. And it was not an insignificant place. It existed in a world of states. There were various marriages between dynastic families of Kievan Rus and other, other uh, uh, sort of royalty, I guess, in uh, Europe and Eurasia. And uh, we just heard there, for example, that the perhaps the dominant uh, European power of the time, Byzantium, uh, offered the regent of Kiev a hand in marriage, uh, but there were also marriages, I think, uh, all the way even to the royal family of England and France and uh, various references to diplomatic embassies in all sorts of places there. And Kiev, Kiev and Rus also emerged after the decline of a significant uh, state known as Khazaria or the Khazar state, which kind of occupied the eastern Ukraine area plus down into the Don and Volga area. And it was a group, a multi-ethnic group, mainly Turkic, sort of um, semi-nomadic kind of people, I think. But it was also one which practiced the Jewish religion. So, and for a period of time, in fact, Kiev was a vassal state to the Khazar state. What is now known as Kiev actually had a different name under that in that period in the 800s. It sort of emerged as Kiev a bit later. And there are some very significant cultural artifacts from this time that um, I guess are with us to this day. So in Kiev, there is the uh, the caves monastery area, which was founded in 1051 by a hermit, uh, Saint Anthony from uh, Mount Athos, the famous sort of Mount Athos uh, Orthodox monastery in uh, Greece somewhere, like on sort of on an island off the Greek 
coast, I think. And that became a, you know, I guess a centre of power, a major cultural centre in the 11th and 12th centuries. And it was also here that a famous church of the Dormortian was uh, built and actually then destroyed in World War II. And it's here also that the uh, monks compile what are known as the Primary Chronicles, which is one of the key, um, I guess, um, literary and historical source documents for Kievan Rus, Russian history, the Primary Chronicle, which in Russian is known as Povest Vremnik Let, Tale of Bygone Years which goes to about, which compiled around about 1100, a little bit after that. And uh, sort of, you know, as histories then did, not just in Russia, but uh, all across the sort of Christian world, would trace their histories all the way back to the biblical era. And uh, as I said, this was compiled in the uh, uh, Kiev Monastery of the Caves and very much celebrated the uh, role of Kiev and Kievan Rus within uh, Christian history and told the uh, many of the stories which are uh, used to describe this time, including, for example, the conversion of Olga and the uh, subsequent uh, adoption by, um, I think it was by Vladimir of the uh, the adoption, the formal adoption of Orthodox Christianity as the state religion of Kievan Rus uh, a little bit later. Uh, and although it was a formal adoption of uh, Orthodox religion, there was much, much persistence of pagan practices, and including some of the uh, princes, etc., of the time. Uh, and then another significant cultural artefact from this period, uh, which is generally seen as the finest literary artefact of this era, is a poem, an epic poem, or ballad, if you like, uh, known as the lay, L-A-Y, the lay, which is a term for a, a form of poem, the lay of Igor's campaign, which describes a unsuccessful military campaign by one of the princes of Kiev, Igor. And um, somewhat like uh, other famous texts, of the medieval era, the story of the preservation and survival of the lay of Igor's campaign itself is something of a remarkable, remarkable thing because it was preserved in only one copy and was only discovered or, I guess, re, you know, re, re, recovered um, at the end of the 18th century. So it was first printed in 1800. So it sort of uh, lands, I guess, in the midst of that blooming Russian enlightenment, that blooming of Russian literary culture from the late uh, 18th and early 19th century. And the 
the single copy was actually destroyed in a fire in Moscow during the Napoleonic invasion in 1812. But it turned out that this first edition was unsatisfactory, reflecting poor scholarship at the time, uh, with portions misread or misinterpreted, or, you know, I guess we all make mistakes, don't we? And um, there have been uh, enormous efforts subsequently for people to sort of work out exactly what the text was. Uh, so, so it's, it's so it's it, I guess it's a little bit like Beowulf in itself. It's one of the fundamental arcs of the Russian language and Russian literary culture, and in itself a reflection on the history of Russia. Because in my little uh, uh, collection of medieval Russia's epics, chronicles, and tales, it. The editors say that the structure of the lay is by no means that of a narrative poem and rather than being an epic tale per se, it is much more a lament over the feudal discord in medieval Russia, a stern admonition to the princes responsible for the fratricidal feuds, the writer's forebodings of impending disaster in the Russian land, proved to be true for only 50 years after Eagle's defeat in the writing of the lay. Russia was subjugated by the Mongol Tatars and lost her independence for, twi- uh, for 200 years. And that, of course, is the story that we retold in the previous episode of the Burning Archives, so do check that out if you haven't already listened to that. And uh, because, of course, on the Burning Archive we believe in preserving from the flames of destruction, the uh, archival and cultural fragments of the past that uh, have stayed with us. Let me read the opening, uh, what's described as invocation, the sort of uh, prologue, if you like, to the lay of the e- of Eagle's campaign. Might it not behoove us, brethren, to commence in ancient strains the grievous lay of Igor's campaign, Igor, son of Sviatoslav. Sviatoslav, remember, was the son of Olga. Then let this begin according to the events of our time, and not according to the cunning of Boyan. Boyan being the sort of... um, Arc, uh, you know, the uh, a bit like Shakespeare's, uh, like a sense of it. He's, he's, it's the um, the or oh, the spirit of poetry. The uh, a bard who lived in the eleventh century and was seen as the best of the writers. There you go. Illusions uh, always in literature. For he, Boyan the seer, when composing a song for someone, soared in his thoughts over the, over the tree of wisdom. Again, uh, potentially uh, influence of steppe mythology rather than European Christian mythology here. Ran as a grey wolf over the land. Almost shamanistic in its sounding flew below the clouds as a blue-grey eagle. 
When he recalled the feuds of former times, he would let loose ten falcons upon a flock of swans, and the first swan overtaken was the first to sing a song to old Yaroslav. That's Yaroslav the Wise, who was the Prince of Kiev from 1019 to 1054, considered the greatest ruler of that time. To valiant Mstislav, who slew Rededa before the Kassog regiments, and to handsome Roman, son of Sviatoslav. All of which is referring to various battles on uh, the Black and Azov Sea coasts. Boyan, however, did not let loose ten falcons upon the flock of swans, but rather he would lay his wise fingers upon the living strings, and they sounded lords to the princes. Let us begin this narration, brethren, from the old times of Vladimir, the, Ma- the Vladimir who converted the state religion of Kiev and Rus to uh, Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, to this present time of Igor, who strengthened his mind with courage, who quickened his heart with valour, and thus imbued with martial spirit, led his valiant regiments against the Cuman land. These are the sort of steppe nomads who are sort of, um, well, semi-nomads who are sort of occupying the sort of uh, I guess what we would now think of as Nova Russia, the, even the Donbass uh, and and uh, Crimea and that sort of area, in defence of the Russian land. So a bit of an indulgence there, uh, but I hope you got that uh, the feel for the uh, mix of Christianity and historical story, but also. A more complex culture as well, and and just got a bit of a feel for that um, that uh, very significant poem in Russian culture. So that's the sort of scene setting, I guess, and uh, but I guess also a bit of an evocation of the nature of this period. And uh, I guess it's important to emphasise, especially given there have been so many debates about the origins and uh, the, the correct descent of one or other nationality from this period of time to emphasize that it, this, there is not a, it's not a continuous story or there are breaks in the story between uh, 800 and today. Obviously, one of those is the destruction of Kiev and Kievan Rus by the Mongol state and uh, the uh, adaptations of the culture and traditions and state practices uh, by the many peoples of this, these territories uh, in response to uh, the Mongol exchange. And when we look at this time, there are various states or nations or tribes or groups that have not survived, like the Khazars and the Pechniks and the Cumans, who were referred to in the lay of uh, Igor's campaign, who occupied much of what we now think of as Ukraine or southern Russia, and even within Kiev, within I guess the core of 
Kievan Rus, the core of central Ukraine, so to speak, and uh, northwestern Russia, the and Belarus. There are multiple groups, some of which one uh, has never really heard of now. And in a way, you can. Um, it's hard to really make sense of the history without looking at a historical atlas. But when one does, you see groups like the Polyanians, the Pechenik, like all in this territory between, I guess, the like what we think of today as St. Petersburg and down to to Crimea. We have Shevardians, Kravitians, Viatians, Khazars, Severovanians, Pechniks, Bolyanians, Lithuanians, and very uh, many battles and fights. Uh, we're not talking about a unified state here. And it's a very complex reading of archaeology, linguistic evidence, and uh, partial documents. Now, uh, some of the neighbours are doing some uh, mowing or something, uh, so I hope the sound is not too much of an issue. I don't know if there's terribly much I can do about reducing it in uh, post-production, but I hope you don't mind. And uh, the story of the birth of Rus, the birth of Ukraine, has been told in many ways by many historians and debated controversially for at least 250 years. Indeed, uh, Le- Mikhail Lomontsinov, who I mentioned in the episode on the Russian Enlightenment, the great polymath of the 18th century, uh, actually wrote a book on this very topic about the controversy as to whether uh, Russia was founded by Germans, Scandinavians, Slavs, or some weird combination of all of the above. And since... Uh, the Ukraine war uh, began in early 22. Of course, there have been many uh, podcasts, and YouTube videos and uh, various accounts of this story, which uh, often will take a particular uh, viewpoint. And moreover, uh, the president of Russia himself, Vladimir Putin, wrote a significant article in uh, July 2021 on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians that, amongst other things, uh, had a few brief uh, paragraphs about this period as well, uh, which, when I sort of reread them just uh, a few minutes ago in preparation for the podcast, is reasonably balanced. And, uh, of course, it is much controversy around this, but much of that controversy is more around perhaps the the, the reflections uh, Vladimir Putin has around the nature of the Ukrainian state in the 20th and 21st centuries, rather than in the uh, period between 800 and 1200. Similarly, it's often, Kevin Roos is often evoked as, I guess, the true European version of Russia rather than its uh, Asiatic Mongol perversion by the Mongol Empire as well, including indeed in the rhetoric of various extreme nationalists of uh, different brands and varieties through the 20th century and the 21st century, uh, as well even in the rhetoric of some European Union officials. And as that uh, rhetoric suggests, 
this story is often refracted through the lens of, I guess, the black legend of Russian history uh, relating to the question of where does Russia get its civilization from or is Russia inherently barbaric? Indeed, in Sergei Plokhi's American-Ukrainian nationalist account of Ukraine, which is, is very popular right now, you almost get the sense, and this is a somewhat simplified account of his his history, that Russia is actually an export of Ukraine rather than the other way around. I think the key thing to bear in mind in following this story and thinking about this period in the context of the black legend of Russian history is, as Mark Smith says, political of this period, his little header for his counter-narrative in this period, is that political cultures are always plural, and that the uh, story of origins is very much that of many partial identities emerging from diversity. No pure nation, whether that be Ukrainian, Russian, Belarusian, Slav, or or any variation thereof. So let's turn uh, then a bit to just a bit of a narrative account of this so that that's also clear for people. I've sort of been dropping bits and pieces into the discussion so far in this more impressionistic version of the podcast. Uh, But let's do a bit of a narrative account of things. So in uh, the 700s, 800s, the real power house, I guess, in this uh, part of the world is the Khazar state, Khazars, who I think I referred to earlier as this fascinating multi-ethnic group who who practice the Jewish religion and occupy, I guess, much of what we would think of as uh, eastern, central Ukraine, southern Russia who are a very important trading state. And they, in control in this period of time of Kiev, which is thought to have been established in around about that time, the 8th to 7th centuries, and known as Sambatas, built on a Central Asian pattern with a fortress in it town and suburb and uh, subjected to that Khazar empire and at the same time the uh, Vikings uh, are moving in to the northern part of Russia and then traveling down the great rivers primarily the Volga River which is more navigable uh, into southern Russia but then uh, they also move down the Dnieper River uh, to this settlement of Kiev. But there are multiple groups of Finnish uh, origin and others. So by the mid-9th century, so about 850 or so, uh, there are a number of northern trading post-type settlements like Staria Lagoda, there's Novgorod, And around Kiev, there's about 11 Slavic tribes who are living in this sort of broad area. 
including Baltic and Finno-Ugrian speaking tribes. And uh, the tradition is that there is a man called Yurik, who is a Scandinavian warrior, who is invited by these various groups to govern the unruly Slavs and bring some sort of order there. And he he establishes his central seat in not Kiev, even though this era is known as Kievan Rus, but in Novgorod. And there were several early rulers who are descended from them, including ultimately our friend who we mentioned before, Olga, who is the regent for about 20 years from the 940s, and she's the one who converts, who's the first to convert to Christianity. Her son, though, Sviatoslav, uh, who rules from about 964 to 72, he, he, is, he retains his pagan faith. And it's he who, in the late 1960s, actually defeats the Khazars and uh, is cocky enough to invade uh, the Byzantine Empire, Byzantium. And this whole uh, territory is really surviving on furs, wax, slaves, uh, trading these commodities and peoples to uh, Muslim and Byzantine empires and also um, trading the various uh, coins, spices, other manufactured goods. Then under Vladimir, who ruled between 980 and 1015, Kiev formally adopts Christianity. But it doesn't really take hold. There's many survivals of paganistic practice. Like like if you think about Lithuania, which is just a bit north of here, Lithuania doesn't really formally convert to Christianity to I think about the 1380s or so but there's it's not until Yaroslav the Wise that things start to get more orthodoxly Christian and his long rule between 1036 and 1054 is generally seen as the height of power the height of cultural influence but uh, both of these uh, people had to fight off the Pechenegs in the steppe, which is like if, like let's say, southern Ukraine, southern Russia. Uh, so again, this is uh, sort of you know the area north of the Black Sea. But after their death, things get pretty messy for uh, Kiev and Rus. In 1054, the year Yaroslav the Wise dies there's a schism the great schism between western and eastern christianity and this is a very fateful event i guess in the history of russia and ukraine and of uh i guess the eastern part of uh, the european peninsula of eurasia and but then there's this the the it becomes a very very messy story where the Kievan Rus doesn't really function as one integrated state. There's all these wars and civil wars and dynastic conflicts and, and, and conflicts with some of these other peoples, the Kumans, the Pechenegs and uh, others. Um, 
and it's basically decades and decades of civil war, fratricide and self-destruction. In 1136, Novgorod separates out. So Novgorod, like one of the core founder parts of this place called Kievan Rus, that was later called Kievan Rus, separates out and establishes the sort of republic of Novgorod. And then in, and the story sort of continues there. Then in 1185, Prince Igor is defeated by the Polobotsi, who again, like one of these sort of semi-nomadic steppe peoples in southern Russia. And that is the defeat uh, on which the uh, lay of Igor's campaign is based. Then in 1203, a later Rurik actually sacks Kiev as part of this uh, dynastic conflict between the various groups, uh, little mini principalities of this area in the constant civil war. And then, of course, uh, from the 1220s, uh, uh, the Mongols start to uh, establish control of the various Russian principalities. And in 1240, the, the Mongols come in and destroy Kiev, bringing an end to uh, the Kievan Rus period. Now, how do we sum all this up? So the historian Nikolai uh, Ryazanovsky, who's written some of the major, I think he's an American-based historian, has taught at one of those American universities for a long time, or did teach at a long time in the uh, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s kind of thing, and has written some of the major textbooks on uh, Russian medieval Russian history. He kind of makes four basic points in his summary of this period of Kievan Rus. First of all, he says that Kievan history can be better understood as a series of extraordinary performances by a number of able princes with the rest of the time devoted mainly to civil wars. There's not really a coherent, strong state that is established in this period of time and it is a period of uh, regrettable feudal feuding as lamented in the lay of Igor's campaign. Secondly, he says that the political development of the Kievan state was sustained by its rich and varied economy and the Kievan state was traditionally considered as a trading state founded on the waterway from the Baltic Sea to the Constantinople. So again, although there was a lot of civil war here, this is also, as it would later be in the Mongol exchange, uh, as it would later be throughout history really, this is also a very crucial nodal point in Eurasia of enormous economic and political significance. So this is by no means like some fratricidal backwater. It's a, it's a series of tragedies happening in a potentially very rich place uh, that is also connected to all the major states of the era and, and relies as much as anything on trade. 
And then he says, uh, thirdly, that Kiev and Rus is located in Ukraine or was partly located in the Ukraine and that this time deserves full consideration as a very impressive initial period of the rather fragmented and tragic Ukrainian history. I'll just leave that point there for now. And then finally he says that one of the most important legacies of this period is Kievan Christianity, literature, architecture and the arts. There are surviving some major churches in Kiev and I guess also uh, Novgorod in this uh, era. There's some astonishing uh, archaeological digs like Staria Lagoda and uh, there is the deep, deep legacy of Orthodox Christianity which of course would develop as all Christianity did develop since that time but is also marked by that foundational event of the schism between the Western and the Eastern churches in 1054. And of course there is the literature of the Primary Chronicle and the lay of Eagle's campaigns. So I think that's a pretty balanced uh, view of uh, things. Uh, Of course there's been so much controversy around all this uh, in recent times and so much controversy around Vladimir Putin's essay on the history of the Ukrainian state and the, the long I guess, cultural connections between the Ukrainian peoples and the Russian peoples. I think it's worth noting, uh, as Mark B. Smith says, that the idea of a continuity between the, the strange, weak, dynastic states um, that exerted very little administrative and um, political control over their citizens in this period between 800 and 1200 and that were constantly at war amongst themselves. Uh, there's, it's a complete anachronism to really see, see that as the birth, the birthplace, the origin story of either Russia or Ukraine or Belarusia. And that it's perhaps better to see Kievan Rus as something of a transition point in the uh, Russian world to try to free stories of uh, this period of history, this part of Russian history, from nationalistic stories, whether they are Ukrainian nationalist, nationalistic stories or Russian nationalistic stories or Belarusian nationalistic stories, and to see it as a transition point in the Russian uh, world, the Orthodox world, the as a culture in which many fragmentary and weak states slowly formed, but some uh, significant new cultural cultural beginnings uh, uh, emerged and expressed themselves, slowly formed. Uh, and ultimately were strengthened and um, adapted in response in conversation with the Mongol Empire. This is not the original pristine European version of Russia that was then corrupted by the Mongol yoke. This is uh, just one of many strands that make up the very complicated, variegated story of Russia, which 
you cannot really understand if you just see it as um, part of the the um, part of the black legend of Russian history. So that brings an end to my backwards my telling of the story backwards of Russian history to try to correct the uh, narrative uh, history of Russia. I'm not going to go into the sort of pre-800 periods because there's so little uh, to be said in a way uh, that's not sort of archaeology. But uh, what I'm going to do in the next episode is maybe do a bit of a review of the most recent aspect of the history of Russian uh, history, uh, the most recent incarnation of the black legend of Russian history, and do a bit of a review of where we've got to in the Russian-NATO-Ukraine war in Ukraine through 2022. But I am going to take a bit of a break for Christmas. So I'll be back with that episode uh, in a couple of weeks. And I hope you've enjoyed this account of Kievan Rus. I hope you've enjoyed hearing uh, some of the original texture and language of the lay of Igor's campaign. And I hope you can uh, use this episode to both recognise the significance of Russia in the the overall history of Eurasia, uh, as well as free it from oversimplifications that we find in the black legend of Russian history. Just briefly, let me also mention, you can uh, check out uh, some more of my material on the uh, the Burning Archive YouTube channel. Do share and subscribe to this podcast. Uh, leave us a positive review, five-star review on iTunes. Uh, check out my YouTube channel and do subscribe and uh, share some of the videos there. I'm putting up uh, some of these videos with extra images Uh, some of these podcasts, I should say, with extra images and also doing some fresh content like I've given, I've done a video on the YouTube channel on the five best books, uh, history books you can read on understanding geopolitics. So check me out there and you can also buy my book from the Burning Archive Uh, from Amazon or any other online uh, retailer. And until next time, hope everyone has a fine Christmas, if you're listening to this before Christmas, or a fine New Year, if you're listening to this before New Year. And if not, I hope uh, to talk to you soon again on more topics on the Burning Archive. And until then, do remember what thou lovest well will not be reft from thee.